Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. It's the very end of the Gospel of Luke, but we understand that Luke also wrote Acts, and originally it's kind of Luke-Acts is, is, is one book. Um, so this is the Gospel portion of what Luke writes, and then Acts is really the church history of the early church that he writes, and he has a, a purpose in, in writing that church history, so, um, and we understand that you can place, uh, if, if we lay Acts out flat, so to speak, in a kind of a spatial way, you bring the epistles that Paul wrote, uh, and you lay them on top of that, and you see how they fit together as Paul's journeys. Uh, he, uh, Luke lays them out, and then we see the letters and to the churches that he writes as we go along. But here today, we're at the final portion of Luke. If you would, would you, if you're able, stand with me as I read the Word of God. Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit. Fill us. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your Word, that we would understand just the greatness of this and the glory and the sacrifice that Christ made, but also how he is now enthroned at your right hand, awaiting your perfect time and in the fullness of time when he will return. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. So Luke chapter 24, verse 50, right at the end. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he departed from them, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, usually goodbyes are kind of sad times, okay? Now, thankfully, with modern technology, it kind of lessens the impact um, but, you know, 100 or 150 years ago, if, if a loved one went off to, to Africa or India, uh, you might not see them again for years, if, if ever, that you would see them again. I mean, the average lifespan of an Englishman going to India on a mission project in the late 17s, early 1800s was six months. So you pretty much knew when they got on the boat, uh, the odds were great that you were never going to see them again on this earth. But today, even if somebody goes halfway around the world, it still is a day's flight, basically. It might be a long flight, but it's still a day's flight, a day's travel to get back to this country. A um, hundred years ago, a letter might take uh, months to reach the appointed person, but now you've got email and um, Skype. Thank you, a voice from heaven, uh, Stella, Skype, um, and WhatsApp, and, and, all, and, and texting, and all this. You can keep in, in contact on a regular basis. When Grace was in the Dominican, uh, we communicated almost every day. Okay? Now, most difficult, the most difficult goodbyes, however, are those that are final in this life. Now, let me make certain we understand that believers never really say goodbye. Yes, we say goodbye in this world, but as believers, we understand that we will see one another again, that those are the promises of our Heavenly Father. Paul says that believers have only fallen asleep, and that's their bodies that have fallen asleep and await the return of Christ. They're, they're, who they really are is before the Lord. And we, we have read here in Acts chapter 1, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. So Jesus was seen to go into heaven, and he will come back in the same way that he went up. But when someone leaves us, and we understand that we will not see them again in in this world, there is a certain amount of sorrow that's involved. So it seems strange to our human minds that here at the end of Luke, it says, and it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. He ascended into heaven, and that's what we read in the first chapter of Acts there. And they returned to Jerusalem how? Heartbroken and sorrowful? And it doesn't say that. It says with great joy. And, and what did they do? They were continually in the temple praising God. Now Luke began his gospel with a message from the angels. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the peoples. Now Luke leaves us with these same types of words. So the, both the arrival and the departure of Jesus from this world were cause for great joy. Cause for great joy. Now, um, when I arrived at, at uh, Reform Seminary to, to do my doctoral work, I, I met a guy, and we were in the lunchroom one day, and I just sat down next to him, and we started talking. And he eventually became a good friend and, and part of the Wineskins group. He's down at First Pres Baton Rouge, uh, Garrett Dawson. And as we were sitting there between classes, I, I, we were about at that stage, we were starting to think about what we were going to write for our, our, our dissertations. And I said, what are you going to write? And he said, I'm going to write about the ascension. And there was a pause as I tried to recall every bit of information that I thought that I could write about the ascension. And the pause wasn't very long, I won't tell you what. And, and Gare looks at me and says, don't worry, everybody responds that way. And he said, but that's a sure, sure reason I know that it, a, very little has been written about it for our context. And of course... Um, Garrett has written several books, and his dissertation was fabulous on the Ascension. Now, I, I, I kind of look back, and, and we never really talked about the Ascension. And this is Ascension Sunday. Now, the Ascension, 40 days after the resurrection, uh, was, was Thursday. How many of you knew that? Oh, we got, okay, yeah, a couple. Uh, my calendar said that, so that's why I knew. But it's not something that we had spent a lot of time on here. Um, now, Pentecost, which is next Sunday, that's the 50 days, Penta, 50 days, uh, we talk more about that, but we don't talk about the Ascension very much. But the Ascension is very important, from, obviously, from what we have read. The way that he went up is the way that he's coming back. Now, Luke, here at the end of his Gospel, just states the facts of the Ascension, that it, that it happened. He saves the details, although there are only 63 words of details in Acts chapter 1. So he doesn't give too many details about it. Now, if you or I were writing about it and, and witness to it, man, we might, we, we might milk that for a little bit because that was really cool. I mean, how many of us, even at New Testament times, had seen somebody just go up and they watch him? You can just put yourself in that, that spot. You watch him as, as long as you can. Um, some of you who have worked for NASA or have been down there and seen a shuttle launch or something like that, you watch the shuttle and it goes up and it goes up, and sooner or later you, you can't see it after a while. I remember I was in Wilmington, I'm driving down College Road, um, and there in front of me, Wilmington, North Carolina, okay, college went north and south, and there I can see the shuttle launch one night. 
okay, because of the, the angle that it was on. I pulled off on colleges as one of those like six-lane roads in the middle of town. I pulled off to the side of the road, as did half of everybody else, and we just got out of our cars and, and just watched it as long as we could until it went up in the clouds and was gone. So you can imagine if you're looking at Jesus, who was there just, just a second ago. You were talking to him, he was blessing you, and, and off he goes, up into the clouds. Well, I think the brevity of its description, now as humans we might want to milk that and make it longer, but the brevity of it speaks to, really to a couple things. One is the, the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is what you'll write, this is only what is needed. And the other is that it was never really a point of controversy. It was a given that it happened. So you don't really have to say much about it or defend it. Now, this is also like the passage in Matthew 27. It's one of my favorite passages because it is so, so weird. How about that? <laughs> Matthew 27:52. The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That's all it says. Now, why is that all that it says? Because everybody saw them. And they don't have to elaborate. They don't have to explain. It was just a fact. And now he just goes right on to the next point. Much like the ascension. Well, I have six points for the ascension. And in your notes you can see a bonus point. We could spend 40 minutes on each point. But really, not, not everybody wants to spend 40 minutes on each point. Okay, So I'm boiling it down to the, the salient facts about the ascension so that we can have some idea of why this is important for us as believers. So number one, the ascension shows us that Christ's exaltation will one day be something the entire world sees. As he went up, so he will come back. What does Luke chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2 say? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of his Father. That does not... It is not limited to only believers saying those things. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will not all believe. Understand, we're not universalists. Not everybody will believe, but everybody will bow their knee and everybody will say, He is Lord because everybody will see Him return. Now you say, well, Ran, the earth is, is round. So how can we who are on this side see His return and at the same time, those who are on this side of the earth see his return. I don't know. God's going to work that out. But he says this is the way it will be. And you cannot miss the return of Christ. I mean, there are people who have said, I remember in 1988, there was 88 reasons why the Lord will return in 1988. Does anybody remember that book? Okay, all right. Um, he, and, and he didn't make it, okay? Okay. Uh, because you cannot figure it out. You cannot figure out the return of Christ because there is only one who knows the return of Christ, the day, the hour, the second, and that is our Heavenly Father. Not even Christ knows his day of return, but the Father will send him in the fullness of time. So as we see, if we're there, we see him ascend, where does he go? He goes to the right hand of the Father. So he is ascending to the throne. Now, who saw Jesus rise from the dead? Hmm, no, nobody. 
Nobody saw him come out of the grave. We, everybody saw the results of the resurrection from the dead. But nobody actually saw. The, the disciples show up and the tomb is empty. Okay? There are the grave clothes. The stone has been rolled away. The tomb is empty. But then they see him afterwards. Over 500 witnesses. They ate with him. They saw him. All of those things. The act of the resurrection was not seen, but the results were seen. Now, everybody knew he was dead. Everybody saw the crucifixion. Everybody saw the body taken down. The body was wrapped, prepared, put into the tomb. By contrast, the ascension was witnessed. Okay? It was seen by witnesses. It was seen by the disciples. No, not by the multitude, but by a few disciples. They saw him go up because they were not going to see anything else after that. They were going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the ability to do all the things that Christ had laid out for them. But just a few saw him go up. Now, we also see some prophetic visions. We see John in the book of Revelation, Paul on the road to Damascus, and perhaps the, uh, uh, the most well-known of that, uh, Paul is pretty well-known, uh, but Stephen... Okay, as he is being stoned, he looks into heaven and sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. This is the only time where we see any mention of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Okay, and a lot of commentaries have said, well, you know, kind of hypothesize about why he is standing. Is he welcoming Stephen up or, or who knows? But it says standing. Every other time we see him seated at the right hand of the Father. So, first reason... Christ's exaltation will one day be something the entire world sees. Secondly, the ascension of Jesus Christ is, in a sense, a vindication of the work of Christ. It is an acceptance of Christ's finished work. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become, what? The righteousness of God. God sent His Son to live the perfect life, to live a life that we could not live, to die a death bearing our punishment upon his person, the weight of our sin was upon him, so that his righteousness would be imputed to us. Okay, There's a fabulous word, and we don't have time to flesh it all out, but imputed to us. We don't get to heaven unless the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It's not just given, but it is it is placed in us. We rest in it. It is all about us. We have none of our own, and it all comes from Christ. So Jesus' ascension is a promise that if we have trusted in Christ, if he has called us and changed our lives, and we have received him as our Lord and Savior, we need to go nowhere else for righteousness. We need to go nowhere else for salvation, for he alone is our salvation. The third one, turn over to John 14. This is, this is a passage we all know, uh, but it is so good, as, not to say the rest aren't good, but it is so good we need to look at it. The ascension confirms the work of Christ, and it initiates his going to prepare a place for us. Going to prepare a place for us. Us being his bride. Now understand throughout Especially the New Testament, we see so many references to the church as the bride of Christ. We see in the Old Testament that the, the covenant people are the, the wife and, and our Heavenly Father is the husband. So here in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, 
He says, let your, not, let your heart not be troubled. Believe God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then, this is an if then, if I go and prepare, then I will come back and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus says, I'm going up, I'm going to get things ready, I'm going to come back, I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you to be where I have been, where I have prepared a place for you to be. Now somebody said that, uh, well, God created the world in six days, and it was good. So it's been 2,000 years. Imagine how good the place he's preparing for us now is going to be. Right? Hey. Revelation 21. And the gates, don't, go, don't turn there, I'm going to just give it to you. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So one of the most precious things in this world will be nothing but pavement in heaven. Men have killed over gold. It's going to be pavement. Try to get that into your mind. It is going to be so good that the things we hold so dear in this world, we're going to walk on. Number four. The ascension guarantees the future glory that is held in reserve for believers. Turn over to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 9. Christ is our guarantee to receive the things that God has promised to us. And part of that guarantee, part of that seal, part of the proof that God will provide for us all the things that he has promised is the ascension of Christ back to the throne. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. It says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal, eternal inheritance. Okay? Christ goes ahead. Christ's ascension says this is the guarantee of the promise for all believers, for those who are in Christ I'm up there. I'm mediating. I'm standing between you and the Father. So when the Father looks upon you, he does not see your sin. He does not see the, the filthiness that, that, that sin has corrupted you to be. He looks through Christ, through the, the precious blood of Christ. We have been washed in that, and now we are whiter than white. And Paul, in Ephesians, even goes so far... That's to say, if you're trusting in Christ, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're already seated with Him in the heavenly places. Now you think, well, no, I'm, I'm seated here in a pew. Uh, uh, how can that be? He says, no, you are already seated with Him in the heavenly places. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. I know I'm giving you a workout, but these are important passages that you need to see and have fixed in your mind relative to this. Jesus, after the ascension, went to the right hand of the Father. And because we are united to him through the work of the Holy Spirit, 
You're not united to him in faith. We are, in a very real sense, already seated at the right hand of the Father, or in the presence of the Father. Only Christ is there, but we are already, we are already there with the Father. Romans chapter 8, <coughs> pardon me, um, verse 29. Notice the tense of the words. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. They are all what tense? Past tense. These things have already happened. But it says, I've been glorified already. No, you have not been glorified, not till you get there, but because it is a promise of God, because the, the Son has ascended to the right hand of the Father, those things are guaranteed. So he writes as if these things have already happened. Because when God makes a promise, when God makes a guarantee, there is no changing it, no adjusting it. It is in the bank, glorified. Glorified. Number five. The ascension of Jesus enables him to pour out his Holy Spirit. Remember John 14, John 16 says, I go so that I can send you a comforter. In Luke, he says, stay here in Jerusalem until I pour out the promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, wait here, I will send the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church. It enables the church. It empowers the church. Uh, Jesus says, you will do works greater than what I've done. On, on a number of basis, you will go out into the entire world, taking the gospel, making disciples, changing the world through the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. So if the Spirit has been poured out, Jesus must be at the right hand of the Father because he said it wouldn't happen until he was there. Now, what did the Spirit come to do? Well, the New Testament says the Spirit does a lot of things, but in, 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 uh, if you can get there as fast as me, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'll give you some time. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Verse 16 and, and 17, if you... In the Sunday school that meets in the chapel, we, we must have spent three weeks on these two verses. Okay, so you're ready for this. You know what this means. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. That he, this is Paul's prayer. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is the, the, the work, one of the main works of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays that the Lord would grant you according to the riches of his glory. The Lord does not drop out his glories little bit by little bit. He pours down the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power, how? Through the Spirit in our inner man. That we can then do these things and live out the faith. 
So one reason Christ left, and so that the Spirit would be poured out upon us to strengthen us, to empower us in our innermost being, so that in the depths of our hearts, Christ might dwell right here. That we would live the life that gives glory and praise to our Heavenly Father, and live a life not in fear, but in power. So number six, the reason Jesus left was because he had accomplished what he came to do, right? When you're done with your work, what do you do? Do you just hang out and kill time? No, when you're done, you move on. He was finished. I came from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again. I'm going to the Father, John 16. And what was the work that Jesus came to accomplish? We don't really have to speculate upon that because he makes it very plain to us. The angel came and told Joseph he will save his people from their sins. That was his work. He will save his people from their sins. Luke chapter 19, he, his role was to seek and to save that which is lost. On the cross, one of the last words of Jesus, he says what? It is finished. His work on this earth was finished. And if you go there and look at that word, that word means what they would write on a bill, paid in full. It was finished. He had given his life to atone for our sin. He had taught, he had prepared his group to continue his work, to do even greater things. He had promised to send his Holy Spirit, John 16, so that your joy may be full. May be full. Take your hymnal, turn to 171. We're not going to sing it. Unless the Spirit overtakes you and you feel you have to. Okay? 171. We usually pull out this hymn in December. 171. It, it, it's a great hymn. Okay? Isaac Watts wrote so many great hymns, and the depth of his, his theological challenge to us was great. But look at verse 3. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. This is the work of Jesus Christ. Where do thorns and sorrows grow? Everywhere. The curse is everywhere. That's sinfulness. He came to address that particular issue, the sinfulness of humankind. For those of us who are saved, we know the power of that. Man, you, you, if you were like me and, and know the day, the exact day when you came a believer, you were, bam, okay? Because I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't interested in it. But the Lord said, Randy, today is the day of your salvation and you will be mine. What do you say to the Lord? You say, yes. You say, yes. The bonus reason. Now, really, I had six, and then at the last minute, I came up with another one, and it was too late to make seven on the notes, so I said bonus. So, um, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I mean, that's the human thing. You know, you just saw somebody go right up. He says, why are you standing there? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples watched him leave. They stood there and, and gawked and gazed and, and, said, and wondered, what, what do we do now? Then they said, 
he's going to come in the same way. Jesus will return in the same way that he went. He did not remain on this earth in bodily form. We have the Holy Spirit. And because of that, each and every believer understands the real presence of Christ. Now, if he was still on this earth in bodily form, let's say he would be over there, of course, on the front row, um, and he would sit there, and there's where he would be. But because he left and ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, where is he now? Right here. And there. And there. And there. And when we come to the table, what happens? Okay? We understand we never leave the room. Christ never leaves the right hand of the Father. But somehow he is here and somehow we are there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what, what a gift this is to us. That we who are so unworthy, we who can be so fickle and feeble, that you loved us enough to send your Son, and he gave his life for us and atoned for our sin that we might know forgiveness. And now he sits at your right hand awaiting your command to return, to gather all those who are his, all those who are, who are in the ground, all those who are still alive, and, and we know that on that day, every eye shall see him return. There will be no question as to what is taking place. Lord, as we come to the table, make real to us his presence. Make real to us the sacrifice that he has made for us and the call upon our lives to live without fear and to walk in the perfect will of you, our Heavenly Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.